The views, ideas, and content of well seekers and their guests are their own opinions, and you should always seek additional professional help around any of the issues discussed here on Well Seekers. Hello, and welcome to Well Seekers, where we are helping you find and feel better from the mind down, rise and come back from the challenges in your life that are holding you back from being your best self and living the life that you crave. My name is Lucia, and I am so honored to be here guiding you through this series on rising and coming back from addiction. If you were this last week, we were speaking to the Vice President of Integrative Services at Aware Recovery, Shelly Halligan, and um, she was talking about treatment options, um, an innovative treatment option um, that Aware Recovery offers. If you missed last week's episode, we dove into what this series is going to be about and also into, again, just some of the ways to access treatment since we are focusing on the rise and the comeback. If you missed that show, there's going to be a link um, underneath or just click on the Well Seekers button and you can uh, take a listen. I highly encourage it. you as we move through these seri- this series. We've really created a holistic approach to it where we're covering all the aspects that go into rising and coming back um, and the recovery process from addiction. On today's show, we're focusing on the family and family can mean lots of different things. It can mean you have a child that struggles with addiction. It means you can be part of a marriage. It means you could be in a relationship um, with children. And this is not just a show for the family member, but also if you are someone who struggles with substance use disorder or addiction, we're going to be talking to you as well in the course of this show. I am so honored to welcome our guest in just a minute. Her name is Epek Akol, and she is a marriage and family therapist based out of Newport Beach, California, someplace that I wish I was today because I am um, in Connecticut and it's 30 degrees and I have a heater on me. Um, so very cold outside today. I wish that I was where Epek was. Um, but Epek's going to be coming on. She works specifically in addiction, substance use disorder, and with families. Um, so she's going to be talking talking about some of the things to do if you have a loved one that struggles or you are a loved one struggling, she'll even speak to you as well. So Epex is going to come on and talk about if you have a loved one that is struggling and you're listening to the show, what you can do, not only some ways to help facilitate getting towards treatment, which is in line with last week's show, but also um, some ways that you can help guide your family member after treatment, right? So after treatment, we so often neglect. Now, how do we continue the comeback, right? How do we continue the recovery? So we're going to talk about um, ways that this affects the family, ways that you can support your family member um, after treatment, before treatment, um, and through this entire process of the recovery journey. So make sure to stick with us. We're going to be right back with EPEC Acol right here on Well Seekers. Today's lifestyle demands the best in wireless, and with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data, coast-to-coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each, including hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers, we got you covered in Canada and Mexico, plus text and data in over 210 countries worldwide, all with the best phones or bring your own that's pretty awesome get the best user experience on mobile at pulsecellular.com 
You're listening to Wellseekers, a show where the journey is just as important as the destination. Welcome back to Wellseekers, and I am so honored to have our guest today, Epek Eichel. Epek is a psychotherapist and a part-time adjunct faculty member at Chapman University in their psychology department. She specializes in drug and alcohol addiction, marriage and family relationships, trauma and mood disorders, and frequently engages in media collaborations and trainings. Um, and we are just so honored to have her on our show today. Epec, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Epek, you studied, you are from and studied in Turkey, I saw in your bio, and we'll have Epek's bio below as well, um, as well as studying at Cal State Long Beach. Um, how long did you live in Turkey before coming to the States? So I did come to States in 2011, so it's been 10 years. Um, I did study psychology. I have an undergraduate degree in psychology from Koch University in Istanbul. And then I decided to pursue a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. And then I moved here to the United States to um, Long Beach to study at Cal State Long Beach. And I have been living here since then, originally uh, from California, uh, Newport Beach, Orange County. Um, so you're in Newport Beach now, correct? I think I yes, yeah. So I lived in Los Angeles for a while, and California is just so close to my heart. My mom's from San Diego. It is a beautiful oh, part. Awesome. Of yeah. How do you like Newport? How are you liking California? I really like it, honestly. So the funny thing is, before I moved to California. Um, I didn't know what California was like. I think this is a very, very big luck for me because when I was applying to schools, um, I didn't even think, okay, I'm applying to the school, but I wonder what the neighborhood is like, what that <laughs> city is like. I, it hasn't even crossed my mind. I was so education focused at the time. And then I ended up coming here and I loved it. And I think I'm very lucky because the first place the first city or the county that i experienced was la county and orange county which um, i consider very very lucky um i love living in orange county the energy of living in orange county especially newport beach and southern orange county it's very calming very relaxing i really enjoy the lack of traffic, the lack of crowds. I come from a big city. Um, I don't know if anybody has been there before, but Istanbul is a very big city. Traffic, crowds everywhere. So being here is amazing. And I love being close to the ocean, being close to the uh, nature. I love going on hikes in the nature. So it really nourishes my soul living here. I loved California for all those reasons, and obviously Wellseekers is a health-focused show, and I just felt like I was at optimal health for a large portion of my time in California, and it's just like you said, right? There's so much peace and serenity in certain spots for sure. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, Epek, we've been talking about, um, and we're doing a series on addiction and substance use disorders. And one of the reasons I specifically wanted to have you on is because of your background in marriage and family therapy, in relationships, in families, because we all know that this is, right, a family disease. This is um, something that impacts relationships as well. For those that are listening that may have a partner 
who has and is not in recovery yet, substance use disorder or some sort of struggle with drug addiction, what are some of the signs and symptoms that you commonly see um, when partners come in and talk about a loved one with a substance use disorder? Absolutely. And I will definitely add some um, information here about what I see day to day in my practice. Um, I do work at an inpatient substance abuse facility in addition to my um, role in my private practice. So I get to see both the family side and the uh, patient side of the situation. So I would like to say that when people decide to get sober, when people decide to recover, most people come to treatment or decide to get treatment with impaired relationships. There is almost no single individual who decides to get sober and who still has perfect relationships. I think this is a very, very important finding because it shows how impairing, how damaging addiction and alcohol abuse is for the relationships. Because the main problem here is that when you're struggling with addiction, your drug of choice, let's say alcohol, becomes the priority of your life. And when you prioritize alcohol, you automatically neglect your family, your significant other, your children. And the other with a very, very important problem in the relationship is trust. Unfortunately, trust is always 100% of the time is impaired in the relationships. And there are so many reasons behind this. First of all, when patients struggle with addiction, they lie. There's a lot of manipulation. There's a lot of dishonesty. And that comes from the shame and embarrassment and um, basically the feelings that they have because of their addiction. And they engage in lying a lot. They may tell you that they stop drinking, but they may still be drinking. And you may have caught your loved one drinking on many occasions, maybe you confronted them and they still lied. So when these incidents occur over and over again, it's very, very um, impairing in terms of people trusting each other. Absolutely. So what I hear is impact, right? The impact that it has on primary relationship, husband, wife, or just your primary significant other. And even if we're looking at it if you're a child, right, that um, if you have a child that suffers from this or if you have a parent that suffers from this, there is tremendous strain on the family system, whether it's a family of two or a family of many, um, because of some of the things that are done under the influence, really. Mm -hmm. Yes, so, exactly. Um, or if someone listening right now, if we start on the just primary relationship with significant other, Right. You so you stated some of those common things that seem to happen. Right. There may be fights. There may be um, a break of trust for plenty of reasons. Right. Finances, I'm assuming sometimes extra marital affairs. Right. Different aspects like that. If your significant other right now is struggling, what is the process for the sober member of that dynamic? How can you help someone that does not want to get help? The first step is to educate yourself about what your loved one is going through. The more you know, 
about the condition, the more in control you're going to feel about what's going on. There are lots of support groups for loved ones of people who struggle with addiction. For example, Al-Anon is one of them. And right now, uh, there are lots of Al-Anon support groups online and also um, in person in some states. Um, that's something that wherever you live, you can always go online and find one that's close to you. And those groups are really important because you are going to need that support. When your loved one is going through addiction, it's very easy to just let everything go in your life and then put all the effort in, in focusing on the loved one. But that is an emotional mistake because you still have to focus on yourself and keeping yourself strong so that you can deal with all the difficulties that you will be experiencing. And the first thing that loved ones should be aware of is enabling versus helping. This is a very important distinction. And, um, let me tell you a little bit about the enabling and uh, maybe some of the examples. So what happens is with enabling, sometimes people confuse it with helping. Enabling is more than helping because it's dangerous, deeper than just giving them money and place to stay, which we will get into it. But sometimes loved ones, even if they don't want to, they may be enabling the loved one's addiction. So some of the examples could be maybe providing them with the money to support their habit, providing them shelter, or maybe downplaying the severity of the problem, providing emotional support, maybe lying on their behalf to protect them from the consequences of their addiction, or maybe rationalizing their behavior or making excuses for them. So for example, if they're not able to go to a family gathering or to an occasion making lies for them and saying, oh, he just has been really busy or she's um, struggling with health problems right now, for example. So basically lying for them. And it's really important that you have to support your loved one's recovery efforts, but you have to set boundaries and you have to let the addicted loved one deal with the consequences of the addiction instead of making excuses for them, taking personal their personal responsibilities over. And most people ask me about, okay, uh, am I going to you know, throw my loved one on the street? Am I going to let them be homeless? And these are the questions that family members ask very often. But the perspective here is preparing the rock bottom for them. Because mm -hmm. a person who struggles with addiction they usually do not realize that this is a big problem and they don't decide to seek help unless they hit rock bottom. So as a loved one, your role could be, and the best thing you can do is to prepare the rock bottom for them by not enabling their addiction. Because this is emotionally very difficult for the loved ones because you have feelings for this person, it's important to have someone to support you in this journey, having your therapist, individual therapist, and also having a support group where you can discuss fam with families or loved ones going through similar situations. 
Absolutely. So such a, a great distinction between helping and enabling. And it sounds like helping almost is taking a step back and letting them hit their bottom, whatever that bottom may be. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And these are some um, very behavioral actions too that they can take. So for example, and this is an important one, when your loved one is struggling with the addiction, sometimes you may find yourself arguing with them, pleading, or even begging them to stop. And this is a very natural emotional reaction because of how you're feeling as a loved one. But it's important that you do exactly the opposite. So this is also enabling, or it could be enabling in the future. So um, it's important that when your loved one is going through those behaviors, that if you avoid reacting to them, for example, they, or let's say you remain quiet and you just go on with your life as if nothing happened, then they are left with nothing to respond to accept their own actions. But instead, if you react to the person's last mistake, for example, the latest mistake, then they can react to your reaction mm-hmm. and it becomes a bigger argument. It also becomes a deflection technique, right? So if you engage in the battle, as opposed to stepping away from the battle, they can almost blame it on you, right? Whatever, whatever actually happened can turn into more of them thinking that the argument is the problem instead of substance use or chemical dependency being the problem. Does that make sense? It does make sense and it happens a lot. Like you said, deflecting, projecting, finding external causes for the addiction is a very common defense mechanism for the um, addict himself or herself. Most of the time, for example, when people relapse, they would blame outside factors. Oh, I, I relapsed because I had an argument with my loved one. And as I was saying, if you kind of take a step back and leave them alone, and then let them deal with the consequences itself that may be breaking the enabling pattern as well. And it's a healthy boundary example also. Absolutely. Ipeg, I know that oftentimes there's a stigma around drug addiction or um, alcohol substance use disorder that we tend to think men, right? And still, even in 2021, we tend to think men. But Mm -hmm. numbers-wise... From what you see, and we're going to do a review of the numbers in our show as well, um, numbers-wise from your practice, do you feel like it has become more split 50-50 from a treatment perspective? Yes, recently. Unfortunately, the stigma is that it's actually very, very similar with the um, stigma against violence and domestic abuse, Um, but there's a stigma that that it's always men who struggle with this condition. I would like to put it out there that in the addiction field, it is very difficult for us to do long-term research because it's really difficult to follow up with the participants for a long time. So the research um, results are not always 100% reliable because our sample is very, very limited. For the illicit drugs and alcohol addiction, men are more likely than women to use I would say all types of illicit drugs. There is a statistics that shows that um, with men, they are more likely to end up in emergency department ER visits and overdoses compared with women. 
Do you think that it's because there's a disproportionate amount of using or do you think it's because women just tend to not seek help as much? I think both of them could be the case. And um, there's also a chance that there's still uh, maybe in more traditional or conservative cultures, um, depending on how this person was raised. When you think about it, if you seek help for your underlying problem, there's a chance that it may not turn into addiction. Or if you start seeking help early on, there's a chance that your addiction may not progress. So that's very, very important. Unfortunately, men are less likely to get help, emotional help, compared with women. And that's a very big factor there. Men choose or prefer repressing their mental health problems, underlying problems, childhood traumas more than women still. And that actually sets the ground for increased addiction, increased alcohol and drug use, because they're using to cope with their underlying problems. And that's why their addiction is becoming more severe and severe. And they end up with more health problems like liver problems or high blood pressure. What I'm hearing is it's really hard to tell the numbers. But one thing that I definitely wanted to touch upon is that this does affect both genders, right? And if someone is listening, since we do have a a fairly female-dominated listenership, if you're struggling and you're a female, right, and some Mm -hmm. people are still under that stigma, it's just as important for you to seek help and you're not alone. The numbers do show an increase in in females um, reaching out for help and suffering from this, this disease as well. And... For those listening that have a loved one that may be male, right? This information is just as pertinent and valuable. But I just wanted to make sure we looked at it from the lens of both genders, right? Because sometimes I'll listen mm-hmm. to podcasts and there's almost an assumption that we're talking about um, females' husbands, right? But that may not be the case. It could be mm-hmm. vice versa. It could be someone listening right now is female and, and struggling with this as well. Or maybe there's a husband listening that has a wife struggling as well. Does that make sense, Ipec? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, as someone who practices as a therapist working with individuals who struggle with addiction, um, both in the inpatient facility that um, I supervise and then in my private practice, the amount of uh, female and male clients that I work with or their families, it's actually very, very balanced. So when you um, really get into this world, you realize that men, women, socioeconomic status, profession, um, it doesn't really matter when it comes to the disease of addiction. Whatever your gender is, whatever your culture is, you're always at risk. So walking us back just a little to where you were talking about hitting rock bottom, Mm-hmm. Is it possible, and I know everyone's rock bottom is different, right? That can mean different things to different people. Is it possible ever if someone maybe has a hunch, right? Maybe your partner or someone in your family has a hunch that they have a problem and that they're struggling, but they haven't hit quote unquote their rock bottom even for themselves. Is it possible to step off of the elevator, the addiction elevator, right? They talk about it being on floors and hitting the rock bottom. Could you step off sooner if 
a significant other or a family member brings it to your attention, is there a way to have a dialogue of sorts to help people step off sooner, to not hit rock bottom? The answer is definitely yes. Um, this is not, um, you know, A leads to B kind of a causal relationship. Uh, and believe it or not, some people are um, conscious and aware enough to realize that, wait a minute, this is not going to a really good place. I know I'm about to lose my family. I have a job that I really love and I don't want to lose my job. Maybe it's time for me to do something different and find a solution to my problem. So um, we do get that a lot too. Sometimes when people notice that they are about to lose the most important things in their life, sometimes that's a wake up call for them also. Or when the addiction is not, let's say, at the rock bottom place, let's say they aren't struggling with severe financial consequences yet, sometimes families can have, for example, interventions with their loved ones and they can talk to them about their concerns, their observations. That can go either way. Some people, if they're not internally ready to quit their addiction, they can become really defensive and um, be in denial. But there are some people who are also very responsive to that too. So it really depends on the individual and where they're at in terms of change in their life at that moment. I know because people ask all the time and you would think, right, with so much information out there, some of this information seems basic, but I'm always surprised because people do come to me both for person because of my personal background and professional background asking, I have a loved one. They're drinking too much. Mm -hmm. They don't see the impact, right? I want to talk to them. I don't know what to say. If someone came to you, is there a script? Are there specific things that you say when you're approaching a loved one, make sure to do blank? Absolutely. So um, first of all, we have to rule out the um, danger or the risk of uh, violence. I always bring this up because I'm very sensitive when it comes to um, domestic violence and issues like that. So if there's no such a risk, of course, the first step is always to talk with your loved one. The first phases of you having a conversation, the first step is always to have a kind and a soft approach. And first of all, you have to show them that you care about them instead of being very judgmental and critical. Because if you are judgmental and critical about their behavior, then it may react, they may react a different way and they may actually go in a direction that you don't want to. Compassion and kindness at the initial phases are definitely um, key. And this is actually the secret ingredient for um, a healthy interaction with the person who has an addiction, definitely. And again, insulting, belittling are some of the behaviors that we definitely want to avoid. And first of all, we have to show them that we accept this person with the addiction. So that's the first step. The other step is to listen to them. You have to listen to your loved one. You can ask questions to them. Hey, tell me what's going on. How much are you drinking? Tell me about why are you drinking? Um, I'm concerned about you. And listen to them without interrupting them and criticizing with them. It's very common that when, um, especially the people we love the most, when they open up to us about 
um, these problems, our first impulse is to, to jump in and offer them a solution, tell them what to do, what not to do. But it's important that, again, do not interrupt and criticize. Just listen to them, even if you do not agree with them. Let them open up to you. And the other one is be consistent. Again, it's important that you communicate with your actions as well. For example, if you're saying that your um, partner has a drinking problem, let's say, it won't be consistent to open up a bottle of wine over dinner. Or if you tell them you don't want your loved one to drink at home anymore because you don't want your children to witness this, you're supposed to be consistent and not let your partner drink at the home. So those boundaries have to be very, very consistent. The other one is that, and we talked about the unconditional love and concern, but it's a very, very important, but you have to always let them know that you still love them and care about them, no matter how severe their addiction is. So that's an important one. Mm-hmm. And again, these are all the communication tips. It always starts with you because there are going to be times that you're going to feel angry. Maybe you are going to want to get upset and have a reaction. You yourself, again, if you're a loved one of an um, addicted person listening to this, you have to have your own outlets. And again, you have to have your own therapist. You have to have your own support group and connect with other families or couples who go through the similar situation. I packed such valuable information. And I would say that that is probably the question I'm asked the most is what, what approach do I take? Because it is hard for people to wait and mm-hmm. walk until someone hits rock bottom, right? And if you can intervene in the meantime, or at least try to, that's usually the route people want to go, right? Mm-hmm. So before we let you go, I've had just two more questions for you. One is, can you offer us some hope? What are some stories on the other side of struggles in marriages or partnerships or families that you have seen emerge because people have stepped into treatment in one form or another, whether it's um, a 12-step program, whether it's counseling, whether it's a rehab? What have you seen heal and um, grow on the other side of addiction? I would say there's definitely hope once the person decides to change. And um, it's very significant because when you think about it, when the person who struggles with addiction decides to get help, their life is being saved. As the time goes by and as they look back and realize what they were about to lose, their gratitude increases. So one thing that I see a lot in working with my clients who struggle with addiction, once they recover and move on in their um, journey of sobriety, there is an extreme amount of gratitude and they hold on to their loved ones, their life, their children, let's say their significant others, they hold on to them and they really understand how important they are. And I think that's wonderful. It's very sad that sometimes you, once you're about to lose something, you realize how important it is. With addiction, once people realize that they could have lost their families or loved ones, they hold on to them even tighter. And the good thing about it is that you get your loved one back and sober so they can now think clearly 
they can now make rational decisions, they can spend more time with you and have meaningful conversations with you. And that's wonderful. So uh, recovery is possible. A lot of people do it with the support. The key here is continued support. A person may have five years, 10 years, 30 years in recovery. It's important that they still have some kind of sober support group set in place. And as long as that's the case, the um, recovery rate, uh, the recovery chance increases. Absolutely. So continued support. It's not something that ends when someone steps into recovery. Once they accept help, that's the first step. And then the rest comes in the years and decades and lifetime to follow, it sounds like. Yes, exactly. Ivan, before we let you go, um, there's one question I usually ask that I didn't ask in the beginning, but what drew you to this field? What was it about this field um, that made you want to focus on this in your line of work? I was always very passionate about psychology and therapy and also marriage and family systems. Mm -hmm. And my perspective on addiction is that I never saw addiction as the problem itself. Mm -hmm. I saw addiction as the solution for other deeply rooted problems, such as childhood traumas, maybe traumas in adulthood, mood disorders, depression, anxiety, relationship problems. And I think with my background and my education, I am trained to work on these issues and working on these issues are saving people's lives. I think the most rewarding thing for me is, and you know, sometimes when people struggle with addiction, not only emotionally, but they go through physical changes as well, including their appearance and witnessing what an individual looks like when they, the first day that they come to treatment, right? Maybe they're disorganized, they look tired, their skin is pale, they're skinnier. And then in three months, once they leave treatment, they look like a complete different person. They're shining, they are sparkling, they look healthier, they can talk healthier. They are just so full of love and hope that you can tell by just looking at them and seeing that transformation is extremely rewarding for me. And it's, um, it, again, it makes my day to hear um, from my clients who are um, still in recovery when they let me know that they have, hey, I hit my one year mark, I have five years now, or I got a job offer, or I got married, it just, makes my day to hear that it's beautiful yeah there is such a drastic change in such a short amount of time and to witness that and to be a part of that process it does sound like incredible work um and it sounds like you do it well um and people are appreciative of what you have really given back to them yes thank you so much absolutely epec if people want to reach you um, and maybe they're in the Southern California area and they want to reach out for private practice, how can they get a hold of you? Yes, you can always reach out to me via email. My email address is info at epecicall.com. So my name, last name.com. Uh, feel free to email me with any questions or concerns or any um, appointment or referral requests. I would love to be of help. Epec Eichel, psychotherapist, 
part-time adjunct faculty member, um, and a specialist in drug and alcohol addiction, marriage and family relationships, trauma and mood disorders. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a wonderful show and your listeners, your audience is very lucky to have you, Lucia. Oh, thanks, Eva. That's so kind. That's the kind of thing you guest has said to me. Thank you. <laughs> we'll be right back on Well Seekers. After a long day, taking time to love yourself and your friends and your family more well can be a challenge. We're so burnt out and exhausted and stressed from working so hard during the day, we forget to love the people and the places and the things that are important to us. Well, Lucia Knight is here to help. We're going to be a retreat and a treat for your day. A place to laugh, to connect, and to learn to love yourself and others more well. We're going to talk about relationships, ways to sleep better. We'll have expert guests, personal stories, maybe even a musical guest or two. We'll share behind the scenes into my own life as well, my friends, my family, and of course, my relationships. So close the door on your day and light up your night with Lucia at night. Also, make sure to check out more at wellseekers.com for simple and real life ways to bring wellness home. I'll see you tonight on Lucia at Night. Thanks for being part of the Seekerhood. We couldn't do this without you. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Well Seekers. Thanks so much to our incredible guest, Epec Akel, a marriage and family therapist, for joining us today and for her wisdom and her experience and knowledge on this journey. We always like to end the show with something I call Lucia's List, which is basically some takeaways that you can do, um, some tools that you can um, work on. Sometimes they're tangible, sometimes they're they're not tangible. Um, I think that there are certain things that have helped in my own self-care journey that are so important. This episode of Lucia's List or this um, week on Lucia's List, we're going to be talking about some items for self-care if you are a caregiver. When you have a family member who is in recovery or trying to get into recovery, one of the things that I know um, from my personal experience working with family members is that the last thing you want to do is spend time taking care of yourself because you're so focused on this other person and making sure that they stay alive, honestly, um, and have been typically for quite a few years. Um, so the last thing you focus on is your own self-care. Number one, stay active. Frequent exercise we know has so many health benefits. When you are caring for someone who's in active addiction or even in early recovery or in the process of recovery, taking care of your own physical health is so important. If it's 30 minutes, 60 minutes would be great um, of exercise most days of the week. If it doesn't seem doable, 15 minutes, right? Just something to get outside, reconnect with yourself, ground in with yourself. Um, one of the things that I love to do is put on my iPods. Um, is that what they're called? I feel so old right now. Yeah, my iPods. And um, and just listen to music and connect with nature, especially when it's not 30 degrees, if it's somewhere between you know 40 and above. I connect with nature or I'll just get on a treadmill and just move my body. Um, but when you're 
when you're caring for someone in active addiction or in the recovery process, it's so important to connect with your body and to stay active um, for all the benefits that we know moving provides us. The second thing is stay connected. Again, when someone is in addiction or even in early recovery, one of the things that happens is families tend to isolate because they don't want to talk about um, the struggles that are going on. So catching up with friends, right? It could be an email. It could be planning a walk if you want to mix it with exercise, right? Um, It could be a phone call. Again, when you're caring for someone else, and I know this again from experience, um, professionally and personally, the last thing that you want to do sometimes is talk to people. So making an effort to catch up with people that are important to you. You can let them know what's going on, that your loved one's in recovery, or maybe they're struggling, or you don't have to, just catching up on things that have to do with you. The last thing is accessing things that bring you joy. Now, and like I said, having worked professionally and personally in this area, I can tell you that one of the biggest things I always heard was there's no time for the things that bring me joy. So these don't need to be big things. These can be um, small things. And again, one of the things we love to do in Wellseekers is connect you to tools. All those boxes that we've assembled is to make self-care easy because it's so challenging and we know, especially for caregivers. So you can hop over to our tool section and get a box. You can go, um, we've have links to on Amazon to make it easy for you. But think back on one small little thing, right? Is it something like a creative pastime that you haven't been doing? Could you draw for an hour? Could you paint for an hour? Could you do a drawing, coloring meditation, right? For 15 minutes, 30 minutes, just something that you love that brings you joy. Sometimes people love listening to podcasts, right? True crime, I know is everyone's favorite. You're listening to this podcast now. Um, So that's hopefully an act of self-care. But is it a book? Is it an article? Is it Googling something for 15 minutes? Is it watching Netflix? But anything that brings you joy, just making sure you are doing that because taking care of yourself is so crucial when you're taking care of somebody else, especially someone who's either trying to get help or in the process of recovery. I want to thank our guest again. Um, And as always, if you've missed any one of the series, uh, we have one our first series that aired last week or two weeks ago, make sure you click on that link. Also make sure to find us on social at Wellseekers or sister show at Lucia at night. You can find me at Lucia Naz, L-U-C-I-A-N-A-Z-Z, all on Instagram and Wellseekers at Twitter, Facebook, we're everywhere. You just type in Wellseekers and I know you'll find us. Thanks so much for being a part of our family and spending this little bit of time with you. We hope it brought you some hope, some peace in your journey, and some light to guide the way uh, for your family member or for yourself as you walk this road towards recovery, towards rising, and towards coming back. So grateful you're a part of our journey, and we will see you real soon for our next part of this six-part series on rising and coming back from addiction. Talk to you soon. How would you like to join the conversation? Email us anytime at hello at wellseekers.com.